0: hello and welcome to another episode of the homegrown horticulture podcast in today's episode we will talk to justin weicker about five of his favorite trees he actually had to narrow these down from 30 and so it'll be a good list A little later on, we will talk to intern Annie Smith about cherry cream cheese pastry. Sweet cherries and tart cherries are both ripening as we speak, and it's good to be able to use things from your garden or local produce. And these desserts always taste best when you have fresh produce to bake them. We will also talk to Kathy Merrill, a former USU Extension Family and Consumer Science faculty member, about grill safety how not to get botulism and other diseases when you are barbecuing for the 4th of July holiday. And finally, for the question of the week, we will talk about iron chlorosis. Or in other words, why is my maple yellow? Well, let's just go ahead and get into it. What? Why do you like honey locust? Well,
1: they are a really good Growing tree, uh, you know, they've got a, a pretty decent growth rate. Um, they're generally healthy. There's there's only, you know, just a couple of pests that really bother them. But as far as great use in a landscape goes, it's very easy fall cleanup because all those little leaves fall off and they, they just go away. And it's a, it can be a very big tree, um, and it does very well in the clay and in the dry conditions, very versatile, handles pollution well and it's just a great all-around tree so what about seeds okay with the older varieties the seed pods were a problem but um, the seed pods now either don't mature or there just aren't as many and so
0: on the cultivars of honey locusts have you
1: noticed any size differences the shade master honey locust is probably one of the biggest ones um, but there's one I can't remember the name of the cultivar, but it's kind of uh, got a yellowish tint to it. Sunburst, yes, yeah, Sunburst. That's right, and it's it's a little bit smaller. Uh, you go to the nursery, and the tag will say twenty to thirty feet or thirty to forty feet.
0: They very well could be, and I I like that you point that out because when you see the size of a plant, it, plants just don't magically stop growing unless they're dead. And so when it says, you know, on a tree 30 to 40 feet, that's usually a 10 to 20 year estimate. Right. So next on your list is ginkgo.
1: Ah, yes. A very unique tree that's not used very much in the Salt Lake Valley. The history of it, um, they were all thought to be extinct. And then they found a monastery in China that had a bunch of them growing around it. And they managed to clone them from that
0: the female trees what are some reasons you may not want that one so the fruit
1: smells like rotting flesh one of my teachers when i was taking horticulture classes at utah state when we were doing the uh, president's walk at the university of utah he picked up one of the fruits off the ground and took a nibble
0: and said it tasted just like it smells (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I wonder if he knew not to, you're supposed to eat the nut inside, not the flesh. I don't know. Okay. So next on your list is big tooth maple. This is one of my favorite maples. Uh, it is
1: native to Utah, um, Utah and surrounding states. So it's already acclimatized to our soil, our environment. So it can handle cold, cold winters. It can handle drought. It can handle the heat of the summer. And it's not, you know, not an extremely large tree. It's big enough to, to put in a residential yard. It's also the tree. This this is the really great part about it. It's the tree that gives us that fantastic orange to red fall color.
0: In the canyons and on yeah. the hillsides. Next on your list, burr oak.
1: Yes. This is one of the larger oak trees. Um, however, if if i planted one in my yard any time in the next year or so it would be my great grandkids that would see it when it got big um, they're not real fast they are very fascinating looking trees they kind of a kind of a freestyle growth pattern very kind of an oval canopy shape but the bark um, is black and has very deep grooves in it um can be you know Very interesting tree to look at even when there's no leaves on it. And the leaves can get really big too. Uh, The only one, the one thing some people may consider to be a downside is the uh, uh, billiard ball size acorns that the tree throws at you when you're mowing the lawn underneath (laughs) it or something like that, you know.
0: But those aren't produced every year. At least I haven't noticed them every year on the tree one thing we should mention that we didn't talk about earlier was that there are sometimes hybrids of the burr oak available like the burr English oak or like the burr gamble oak and you can order these online but one thing that you oftentimes get out of that hybrid is increased vigor so it's not like it's going to be a speed demon but that tree instead of growing a foot a year will grow 18 inches even sometimes 2 feet a year and you'll have a lot more tree sooner and so you'll enjoy it as along with the grandkids right when you're talking about a tree that can live four or five hundred years in the wild you know a foot to 18 inches a year is very reasonable for a tree with that longevity
1: right one one really good advantage to these the, the Burr Oaks is they are a very strong wooded tree, so they can handle the high wind and and harsh environment that we have here in the in the in the valley. They are actually found native to the prairie states. They can grow as a single specimen tree just out in the middle of nowhere um, or together in groups and um, they can handle all of those harsh environmental
0: obstacles. Aren't they, in the Midwest, aren't they actually native to alkaline soil? Yes. So they, they handle the lime in our soil much better than many other trees. That is correct. Next on your list is bald cypress. And for me, this one was kind of a sleeper. So would you describe the bald cypress?
1: Bald cypress has an appearance... Uh, makes it look like a kind of a, not a, it looks like a pine tree, but it's not a very dense pine tree. Uh, what makes it really unique is, while it looks like an evergreen, it is not. It is deciduous. It is a deciduous conifer, so every winter it will lose all of its leaves. But they turn a very nice kind of a bronze color in the fall, and These trees can live to be around 2, maybe 3,000 years old. So they're a very long-lived tree. Uh, They get to be a pretty decent size, around 50, 60 feet. Not a real wide canopy, but, uh, you know, they they can get up there.
0: How fast have you witnessed them growing? How many inches or feet per year?
1: When they are young, I've seen them put on 2 feet a year.
0: Uh, really quick for a conifer then. Of
1: course, you say when they're young, for a tree that can grow to be 3,000 years old, young is like 500 yes. years still. Well, but in the
0: landscape, 50 years for a tree oftentimes is ancient.
1: When when they are babies, I guess we should say, they, uh, easily two feet a
0: year. So after five or six years, you'll have a, a decent-sized tree. Could you contrast the bald cypress with Don Redwood? Don Redwood to me looks very similar, but mm-hmm. have you noticed differences in the two trees?
1: Yes. Um, it, they do look almost identical. Uh, they, well, the, most of us, they would look identical. But if you look at the branch structure, the Don Redwoods, the branches are, are appear to be reaching up. So they they have kind of an upward angle to them where the bald cypress will go straight out and maybe angled down just a little bit.
0: And the dawn red one is another tree native to China that we thought was extinct. And it's become very, not really very common, but very available. And that might be one we could talk about another time, but the bald cypress, you know, I have lived in the Southeast and seen it in the swamps to where it, you know, the, the, you know, the alligators and stuff like that, the stereotypical look, but how does it do in our soil?
1: It does reasonably well. You mentioned you've seen it in the swamps. It actually prefers a place with lots of water. So if you've got a low spot in the yard, it might be a great tree for that spot. It will handle drier conditions, but the drier conditions will slow it down. Uh, Still a great tree for the valley. It does well in poor drained soil. I I actually uh, looked up all that information. It tolerates moderate amount of salt does really well in poor draining soil um, can handle most conditions that we have here in the valley
0: well those are the five trees and as always justin we greatly appreciate your time have a great week I'm with Utah State University Extension horticulture intern, Annie Smith, and we are continuing our adventure of using fresh local food. So, Annie, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing so good.
0: Awesome. I'm glad you're here again.
2: It's great to be back.
0: (laughs) And what did you cook this time?
2: Uh, This week, I made a fresh sweet cherry cream cheese pastry, just with some puff pastry from the store and then just a bunch of regular kitchen staples and some sweet cherries
0: it sounds delicious and it was delicious I actually got to try it so what led you to make this particular dessert
2: well sweet cherries are in season right now and I did have some puff pastry laying around so that was that was a big motivation that was for the me. motivation
0: yeah no it's all good and Puff pastry, and I, again, I was born in a barn. It's not anything I've ever really played with, but when you brought in the actual pastry that you made, it looked like something that had been purchased from the grocery store, a cream cheese dessert that you'd purchased from the grocery store, and it looked really good.
2: Yeah, I'm glad. This is one of my first like actual pastry baking experiences, so I'm glad that it turned out pretty well.
0: So take us through the process of making this particular dessert.
2: It was super easy, actually. So I just, there's three components. There's the actual pastry part, and then the, well, there's only two, pastry and filling. The filling was cream cheese with some sugar, flour, almond extract. Really simple, easy to make. And then the cherries, I didn't have to do anything with. I just pitted and chopped them and then put them on top and they were sweet enough that I didn't have to, I didn't have to add anything. And then just, um, I braided the puff pastry over the top of that just to make it look pretty. And then I baked it for, let me check. It was only like 20 minutes, baked it for 20 minutes at 400. And it looked great.
0: What do you suspect your total prep time was?
2: I don't have a cherry pitter, so it was pretty long, but, uh, excluding that, it was probably maybe 20 minutes because I didn't have to...
0: It just didn't take that long. So 20 minutes or so of prep time and 20 minutes baking time.
2: Yeah. Maybe a little more done. baking depending on how golden brown you want it to be. So but did
0: you have to chill the dessert when you were done or just let it cool at room temperature? Or what? I just
2: let it cool at room temperature for a while and then I actually made two separate batches of this, and the first batch I ate pretty quickly, but I kept it in the refrigerator and it it reheated really well, I thought, and tasted just as good.
0: No, I actually reheated some of the you had refrigerated here, and I just microwaved it, I think, for just thirty seconds or something, and it tasted great. So this particular dessert to me, I'm not a huge fan of really desserts with tons of fruit in them and even though this one had cherries in it when I ate it I was not overwhelmed by the number of cherries in there and I I really liked that about this particular recipe
2: Mm -hmm. that's one thing that I I'm not usually a fruit filling person either but I think that I liked this more because I didn't have to do anything to the cherries like they tasted more like the actual fruit than like an artificial filling something being
0: candied
2: yeah and so I liked that a lot.
0: It, it was really good. And so about 40 minutes and done. And then did, if it doesn't get eaten immediately, which it should, just refrigerate it until you're ready.
2: Yeah, it's definitely good enough that I did burn the roof of my mouth eating it right out of the oven. But it does reheat great, too. So perks all around. <laughs>
0: no, it's all good. And it tastes very good. Well, thank you very much. And mm-hmm. that was Fresh Sweet Cherry Cream Cheese Pastry. And it was really good. So thank you very much. Thanks. Today, we're going to be talking about how to handle meat safely, grill safety, and also a fabulous, easy uh, teriyaki recipe that works well with chicken and I would assume other meats too.
3: I like chicken best, but yes, it'll work with anything.
0: Very good. So, Kathy, we've been talking for a week or two about what to maybe talk about on this podcast. And some obvious things came out. And the first one was how to actually get your meat from the store to your house safely. And there was a little bit more involved than I imagined.
3: Yes. One of the things that you have to watch out for when you get your meat, you want to make sure you don't have any ripped packages. Uh, you want to make sure that your meat is cold to the touch when you pick it up. And the really thing, the really big thing that you have to be careful of is not putting your meat in such a fashion that it's going to drip on, you know, the raw meat juice is going to drip on things that are ready to eat. You don't want to put those together. You want to make sure the cashier puts them in separate bags. Uh, you want to make sure that, you know, you you just keep it separate so that you don't, Cause problems. At.
0: Traditionally, we we've been told that we have two hours to get that cold produce or the meat home and get it refrigerated. But I found out something today that I didn't know. So in the summer, what's the rule for getting this refrigerated meat home?
3: Really, you've only got about an hour because it's so hot outside. You've got to. It's really a good idea to take ice with you and some sort of ice pack with you to put on your meat so that you can get it home and keep it cold so that you avoid bacteria growth.
0: Yeah, looking at the information, it even said that if you have a long way to go or a lot of shopping to do, get your meat last so that it goes to the cashier, gets bagged immediately and then get it if you need to into your cooler and get it home as quickly as possible. So once you get it home, what are the safety handling tips that you have until you're ready to grill?
3: Well, the obviously, you get it into the refrigerator as quick as you can. Meats shouldn't be stored on the upper part of the refrigerator. They should be down at the bottom on some sort of a tray to make sure that you don't get juices into anything else. Uh, you know, meat juice in grapes is just really not a good idea
0: <laughs> so I mean, one thing I thought of that we didn't really discuss, but if you have frozen meat already, what is the best way to thaw it out?
3: Oh, thawed in the refrigerator. If you uh, are short on time, you can go ahead and thawed in the microwave. But I've found it sometimes it almost cooks a little bit of those. Yeah, tips, no matter and I how like that.
0: good the microwave is, whether it's a fifty-dollar or two hundred-dollar microwave, I've never found one that doesn't leave the middle frozen and the outside cooked.
3: Yes, and and so I don't. I, if you have frozen meat, the best way to do it is to put it in the refrigerator. Uh, on a tray, of course, and let it thaw. Now, sometimes if you've got a big chunk of meat, it's going to take a couple of days. So just, you know, go ahead and plan for that couple of days. Another way of quick thawing it would be to put it in, cool water in the sink but you change that cool water out every 20 minutes
0: i've actually done that and it's amazing how fast that meat thaws out because of the heat exchange going from that frozen state into the water that raises that temperature up and that's a great way for me at least that i've tried that works well
3: Yes, uh, that's what I do too. And that works really well.
0: So now that we've got the meat in the refrigerator, we've got to make sure that our grill, whether it's a gas grill or a charcoal grill, is clean. And what are some tips you have for making sure that you have a safe area to cook?
3: Well, you have to make sure that you've got the area around the grill. Uh, Obviously, you want to keep things, you know, fire safety, you have to be careful of. But uh, as far as food safety, you want to make sure that you've got things wiped off and you know use some detergent. You can sanitize it if you want. But if you use those handy wipes that that you pull out, you're gonna have to also rinse it because you don't want the the chemical in there.
0: Oh, man, those handy wipes are they're handy, as the name implies, but every time I use those, they leave a film on my hands, and I just I can't imagine trying to clean a surface that you're going to cook with those. And uh, Yeah, and so just soapy water and rinse.
3: Soapy water and rinse. And that, you know, use plenty of clean water and you ought to be fine.
0: That's great. Now, that has to be cleaned every time before you actually put the meat on the grill. And you had a handy tip that uh, you get the grill hot first because that will loosen up any remaining food on it, but to get oil on paper towels or on a towel and rub the grill down with that oiled paper towel or oiled rag.
3: Yes, that's a that was a tip that I found on Serious Eats, um, but it, I also saw it on some of the other sites as well to try and oil that grill the the idea was to get uh, it'll be easier to scrape off if you have that great hot first and uh, you could do that at the end of uh, of cooking and so it'd be ready to go but it does kind of season the grill a little bit like a cast iron pot would be seasoned if The baked-in stuff is left on to protect it a little bit from getting rusty, and and you do want to cover your grill so that it doesn't get rust and dirt into it. Uh, One of the other things that you've really got to make sure to do, though, is get the ashes out every time.
0: Yeah, and as we discussed this earlier, the ashes, you could have old food in there that you don't see that as it continues to now burn creates off flavors and it could create an unsafe environment. But even those ashes that are left in there could actually make your food taste bad.
3: Oh, yes, it could make your food taste bad. It'll give you areas of, um, uh, you know, just aromas that you don't want to have. And, uh, but it also evidently, if it gets a little bit of moisture into it, you could end up having a lump of cement in the bottom of your grill and that's just not going to help anything.
0: No. And I've actually watched YouTube videos. There's a primitive technology channel where the gentleman that is on there made cement from wood ashes. And that's what charcoal is made from. So it it is a real possibility that that could happen because of everything that goes on in there. Now, as you're cooking your meat, one of the difficult things for me is to know when things are properly done. I am either undercooked or it comes off as beef jerky. And so what are some of your tips for making sure that the meat is cooked correctly?
3: Well, actually, the best and easiest way is to get a meat thermometer And so you can check your meat thermometer because even a a hamburger, the meat will look brown, but it might not actually be up to that 160 that you need to be safe uh, to avoid E. coli and stuff. So uh, ground mixtures uh, have to be up to 160 on a meat thermometer. And uh, chicken has to be up to 165. And then the whole cuts of meat like steak or pork, ham, lamb, veal, you know, where it's a, an intact piece of meat, they only need to be up to 145. Now, on those pieces of meat, you also have to, when you take it off the grill to to try and decide, you know, put the thermometer in, uh, you have to let it rest for three minutes so that the temperature will be actually what it is because the temperature will continue to rise even after you've taken it off the grill for a, a little bit.
0: Wow, that's interesting. I've, I've actually used the Three Stooges method of trying to check the temperature of the meat and not taking the meat off the grill. And you're burning your thermometer up, the meat you can't ever get. And I, I never thought, you know, maybe you should take the meat off the grill first. <laughs> but that's a great tip because I, you know, I, I'm not a classically trained French chef that can tell if this stuff is cooked correctly by just touch. And that's really a risky way to do it, anyway.
3: That is, that is a very risky way. As a matter of fact, uh, there's an autobiography by Jacques Pepin, who is who brought French cooking to America, and he talks about his classical training, and also about the fact that uh, the tips of his fingers didn't have any feeling left in them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, I remember one from Anthony Bourdain, who unfortunately just passed about him grabbing a pot in the first kitchen he worked in and moving it across the kitchen not knowing it was hot, but he didn't want to drop it, so he just took the burns. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awful. Yeah, and I, I guess you go through that if you're a professional chef. Well, is there anything else you want to bring up about the temperature the meat should be?
3: Um, no, you just have to make sure that you've got it you know, in a food-safe area.
0: Now, as a bonus, you have a fabulous but very easy teriyaki recipe that doesn't actually have a lot of ingredients.
3: No, it's very simple to make, and uh, you know you can make it ahead. Now, one thing on the marinades, you do have to be careful if you're marinating something that you do not cross-contaminate with that juice. When you're finished marinating, which should be done in the refrigerator, uh, you throw out the the marinade. You can cook with it, but you cannot use that marinade for, you know, putting it over the meat after you've grilled it. You've got to get rid of that because you've got the raw meat juice in it now.
0: I can't imagine the amount of botulism if you've been doing chicken or other foodborne diseases or pathogens that would be in there if you've soaked it in that raw meat. And so if you do use it to cook, it has to be brought up to boiling?
3: Yes. For how long? 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Uh, it's not so much botulism risk, but you'd get salmonella pretty quick and E. coli and things like that.
0: Not a good idea.
3: Not a good idea whatsoever. So, But the teriyaki sauce, I like it because it makes the chicken tender. And you don't really have to marinate it very long, uh, any kind of a marinade, even if you're just using pineapple juice or something. If you've got 5 or 10 minutes, uh, it will tenderize the meat. And so anything helps. Uh, it's got... Half a cup of oil, a quarter cup of soy sauce, a half onion, and then chop that up, Uh, two to three cloves of garlic, and I use half a teaspoon of garlic powder instead of the cloves of garlic because I'm not a real garlic fan, Uh, and then half a cup of brown sugar. And so you just mix that together, and you can store that in your refrigerator and pull it out when you want to use it, and then once you've used it, you throw it away.
0: That sounds so delicious. And you said that, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times that you don't need to soak the meat in it overnight. 10 to 15 minutes is all you really need.
3: Yeah. Uh, I mean, to soak it overnight, you're going to get a more intense flavor, but it still tenderizes in 10 or 15 minutes.
0: Great. Well, Kathy, we appreciate your time with us, and we know that this sometimes can be a little bit stressful with busy schedules and everything. And so thank you again.
3: Well, thanks for letting me do this. Yeah, do you I think have, that's great. Yeah.
0: Do you have anything else before we go?
3: Oh, enjoy your food.
0: During the summer, I like to take a lot of walks and sometimes go for drives. And I've noticed many trees in my neighborhood, in neighborhoods around Utah County and around the state, that have trees, particularly maples, but others too, turning yellow. And I get a lot of questions in my office, as do other extension horticulturists, as to why these trees are yellow. And usually it's a condition called iron chlorosis. Chlorosis means that a plant has a lack of something. So in this particular case, it's iron and possibly some other micronutrient nutrients. So the look of this is when you see a tree and the leaves are turning light green or yellow and you look more closely at them and the veins are often a really uh, bright green as compared to the rest of the leaf. And in extreme situations, the leaves can turn white with some yellow venation and then you start to see dead spots, almost dead brown patches on the leaves where the leaves have scorched. And this is due to a lack of iron. And the reason the leaves turn this color is that iron is involved in photosynthesis and in some of the chemicals in photosynthesis. And without iron, you can't have a green leaf. And so this is oftentimes made worse by improper irrigation in that people have a tendency to water too often and it waterlogs the soil, and when there's a lack of oxygen in the soil, it makes it harder for the roots to get iron, which is already limited, into the system. Now, in addition to this, something we can't do anything about is the weather. Iron chlorosis is made worse by cool weather, especially when it's raining, but we can control irrigation. So, One thing that I will often advise people about iron chlorosis is that the best way to treat it is to never get it in your yard. And so a lot of this comes down to carefully managing what shade trees and what ornamental trees we use. So it's a big thing to have red fall color in your trees. And so the stereotypical trees that we want to use are various types of sugar maple and various types. Of red maple. Now, I'm not talking red leaf Norway maple, but true red maple, which is Acer rubrum. These trees are adapted to a cooler, more moderate climate that has acidic soil. Uh, You could also say the soil has a lower pH. It's the same thing. At lower pH, iron is much more available. And when you bring them out west and plant them in our alkaline soils, the alkalinity causes the iron to not be water-soluble and it settles out. And so there's not enough iron for the trees to take up because they're just not really efficient at it. So when you're looking for shade trees, be sure to look for things like Japanese alcovas, hackberry, some of the white oaks. Um, there's a whole group of them, burr oak, American white oak, English oak, or a few of the more common ones. Even swamp white oak does relatively well as long as it's not in really bad soil. There are many other trees. Um, Crab apples are some, the hawthorns, some of the flowering cherries are fine too. But you want to find trees that are more able to get what iron is available from the soil. Now if you already have trees or you're just set on planting trees that may have problems such as Autumn Blaze Maple, or as I mentioned, the red maples or the sugar maples, then you will probably end up treating them annually with what's called chelated iron. Now there's many forms of chelated iron or they're referred to as iron chelates. And the one that you want contains a specific chemical that's abbreviated EDDHA. This particular form of iron chelate will stay water soluble in our alkaline soils for up to a year or maybe two years. You put it down in early spring for the best results before the tree leaves out or if the tree is leafed out while it's still cool. The later you wait, generally the harder it is to get the tree to take the iron up. You'll plan on doing this every spring. Even with this, the tree may still get some iron chlorosis, and this is where you need to manage your irrigation carefully. If you can avoid it, give that tree a good amount of space that it doesn't have lawn around it, so no grass, and you want just open ground or bark mulch or something. Don't be putting petunias or things under the base either. Just bark mulch or open ground. And when you water that tree as it gets established, it will be perfectly happy being watered about every 10 days or so, about a foot to 18 inches deep, and then you let it totally dry out and then water it again. Now I'm not going to I'm not going to mention a gallons per hour or something like that. All soils are different. But the critical thing is, is if you can, is to drive that water about a foot to 18 inches deep. There are many other iron products out there. And they vary in their effectiveness if they're applied to the soil. So if you're using like an iron sulfate, those are generally less effective. Sometimes people use sulfur, like an elemental sulfur, in granular form and apply that to their grass. That's fine. It will be slow-acting and it can help temporarily free up some iron because as the sulfur goes into solution, it forms sulfuric acid which makes the iron available, but is quickly buffered out by our alkaline soil. But it can help in certain situations. But I think the take-home here is, is if you have the opportunity to plant shade trees and you want that red fall color, you might look at a tree called Pacific Sunset Maple, another one called Norwegian Sunset, or Japanese Elkova. For smaller trees that have really good red fall color, Washington Hawthorn. And also some of the serviceberry trees. So, amalancher, amalancher, depending on how technical you want to get. So, planting adapted trees is the best thing to do and carefully managing irrigation. But this is why trees are going yellow, and this is how you would deal with it.